Okay, thumbs up. We <laughs> live streaming, videoing, and all that turned on. Okay, cool. All right, that's good. Uh, for second session, uh, if you didn't pick one of these up, pick pick one of these up. This is going to be our topic this week and next week. Uh, it's going to be the the birth of the Messiah, and we're going to take a look chronologically at how all these stories fit together, and we're going to go through them that way and. We'll talk about all kinds of crazy things like is, is was Jesus really born on December 25th and all those other issues that people bring up that are really <laughs> non-essential issues to the fact he was born. So <laughs> the fact he came into the world is the point. So that's what we're going to look at. That's what we're going to deal with. If you would today, though, open your Bibles to this first session to 2 Peter 1.6. We have been wading through that, as you might have realized, but there's a reason for doing that. Uh, we're looking at the context of the last days and the question, how then shall we live? Well, how then shall we live is Second Peter 1, because it's sandwiched in between some other major prophetic passages. And Second uh, uh, Peter 2 and 3 are all prophecy. And then there's a little book of Jude that follows after that, and of course the book of Revelation. But the question is, with all the knowledge of prophecy, how do we live? What, how, do we, how do we function in the society in which we find ourselves if we find ourselves in the last days? And one of the ways that we as Christians are supposed to live is to live with honor. And that's what this is talking about. No matter what t culture, time frame that you find yourself in dispensation, we're to live in that time frame with honor. And he, Peter is giving us the objective of what our life should be, what our ultimate goal should be. And he's also giving us a little roadmap of how to get there, and that's what we've been looking at. So this is very, very important, very practical information, uh, and it's good for us to, to drill down into it because as, as you're reading through the Bible, by the time you get to Second Peter, you can see the end in sight, and so you're wondering... How fast can I finish this book instead of where do I need to slow down and take a look at it? This is one of the places that we need to slow down. So let's take this minute for prayer as we usually do uh, because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So let's put away all of the, the distractions. That's one big lump term for all the stuff going on in the world right now. Put them all away. And decide that we want the, the Lord's word to be our food this morning. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are so amazingly blessed. And honestly, we just don't even realize it. Too many times we think about the things we don't have. Instead of celebrating you and thanking you for what you have already given us. And Father, as Peter told us early on, you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. So Father, I pray as we look at your word a little deeper, I pray that the, the Holy Spirit will help us to understand and remember and then be able to use wisely that which we learn today. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been looking at a target. Peter's been drawing a target for us under the ministry of the Spirit. He says, you add the diligence. Okay, the Lord has provided everything that we need for life and godliness. He said, you add the diligence. That means you have to make an honest effort at it. 
You have to have a zeal about it. You're not just doing it because you want to do it or because you are forced to do it. You're doing it because you, because you want to do it. And, and there's a speed that is involved. As you track those words, budazo, you find that to be very clear meanings of that word that they just translate simply as diligence. But you add it. That's for us. That's a volitional decision that we have to make. And then in the sphere of, these are all dative's of sphere, so it's taking the large circle and then it's drawing a target in the sphere of this and the sphere of this and the sphere of this. It says add the faith. The faith is a, is a reference when it says the faith that is talking specifically about the object of the faith and that being the Lord Jesus Christ. So <clears throat> you've decided that you want to, to, you're a believer, you want to know him, but you want to know him better. Add the faith. As you have received him, so walk in him. Colossians 2.6. So that's what we are, we are called to do. So add the faith and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that's how Peter closes this epistle. And in the sphere of the faith and the Lord, the main object, add the virtue. Now, the virtue is what he established. It's the right and wrong that have been established from eternity past. And uh, God has written that on the hearts of men. It says in Romans 2, even the Gentiles that don't know the law, they know what's in the law because they... Everybody has a concept of what's right and what is wrong. So you add virtue. <clears throat> so you've, you've made an adjustment already because when we know that the two main goals are to love God and love one another, well, how, how do we get there? How do you get where you can fully not just know about it but experience the love of God and loving one another? And you add, he said, <clears throat> the virtue. And then in the sphere of the virtue... You add the knowledge. And honestly, when I started out as a, as a, a Christian, I, f- I finally decided it was time to... But the Lord pushed me, poked me, did a little bit of everything else, and finally I made the decision. You know how that goes. So it was kind of like, okay, let's, let's learn now. It's time for me to learn. It's time for me to grow up. And it's, I thought knowledge should have come first. Because where I got started and the churches I got started in, knowledge was at the top. And when I first started doing this, I, I and exegeting and learning Greek and and going, and I hit Second Peter and I went, <clears throat> why is that down there fourth? What's it doing in fourth place? It's saying that you need to approach the Word of God for the knowledge with the right attitude to start with. That you're going to study it, not just to blow through it and say that I've read the Bible. I was selling Bible books. I can still remember a lady uh, out in southwest Virginia, my first summer selling Bible books. And I didn't know up from down hardly about the Bible, but I was still selling Bible books. Danny knows what I'm talking about. He did it. I think Larry did it too. Okay, we got some old Bible guys in here. <laughs> you know, and she's... Well, I've read the Bible 36 times, and she was counting how many times she had gone through there. And I went, oh, okay. And so, uh, anyway, I didn't know enough to say anything to her, and I didn't. I just commended her for that and and went on. But that's the way some people approach the Scriptures. They're going to read through it just to say they've read through it, and some keep account. And that's fine. The point is they're reading through it. So if they're reading through it 
Maybe they'll get something out of it one of these days. But knowledge comes down here. See, after you get the object of the faith right, there's a knowledge that goes into that. And then virtue is something which is written on our hearts concerning right and wrong, so we're not going to try and live in sin and understand his, his word. And then we start adding the knowledge. See the, the sequence that, that comes through here? And then in the middle of the knowledge is the self-control. Now, <clears throat> that's one of the hardest things for us to do. And as, uh, uh, you know, we have the 1st of January coming up. And that with that always comes some New Year's resolutions. And those are always fun. You know, if a person just kept track of how many New Year's resolutions they broke, they'd realize they were a sinner. It's the easiest thing to do. Say, okay, did I break your yeah? How long did it take? Sometimes the same day. Okay? Sometimes we made it a week. Self-control, though, is something that the Holy Spirit gives. <laughs> it's not just the human will that brings about self-control because there's a spiritual aspect to self-control. And we have this self-control that we gain so we can get up and go to work. We get various things like that. But there is this self-control that's a spiritual self-control that has to do with prayer, Bible study, uh, praise and worship. It has to do with those things. That's what this is talking about. And in the sphere of the self-control, it says perseverance. Now, we're a, we're a nation, and actually it's a world, that um, keeping our attention for very long is not easy to do. Uh, the, the churches today in the mainline denominations, their, <clears throat> their sermons maybe will last 15 to 20 minutes. <clears throat> Excuse me. In most churches, because they say that's what the attention span is of most people today. So instead of trying to get them to a different level where they can have a higher attention span... They just keep playing to them. And as a result, the sermons get shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, and a friend's a Baptist pastor for a long time. And he said, I went back to the church that I grew up in, fully expecting to get a full 45 minutes to an hour of a really good hellfire and brimstone sermon. And he said, I got 12 minutes <laughs> of, of sermon." And needless to say, he was highly disappointed. Perseverance, though, requires... We need perseverance in our Bible study. Perseverance in our pursuit of knowledge. Perseverance in our virtue. Okay, my, I'm virtuous today. What's tomorrow going to be like? We need perseverance in all those things. But see how this is laid out. <clears throat> we supply the diligence. Give me just a second. I'm just getting warmed up good. <clears throat> takes me 10 or 12 minutes to get my throat working properly <clears throat> perseverance hanging on hanging in there don't quit and now there, there's times every one of us is going to be tested to quit we are just tired of doing the same thing over and over and over again we're tired actually of the self control aren't we the self-control to do the right thing in the right way, and we get tired of that. And so here is Satan coming along and saying, y'all, you don't need to do that anymore. 
<clears throat> you don't need to go to church anymore. You don't need to read your Bible anymore. You don't need to, and just the list goes on and on. But perseverance is so very important. In fact, perseverance is one of the qualities for the crown of life. Persevering to the end. Other crowns don't necessarily require the perseverance, but they they that one does. There's a perseverance to the crown of life. Then we have where we are today in the perseverance, the godliness. Godliness is eusebia is the word. Sabia is a word that means reverence. And the U on the front of it says well. So it means to reverence God well. To have a real awe of who he is. It's, it's hard to walk out at night and look at the heavens, for example, and not see him. You, ha- you have to wipe it out. I remember one time trying to... <clears throat> Uh, it's too long a story for this morning. <clears throat> it was given the gospel to this young lady, and she was just a definite no, and it was a deal that involved a uh, wedding. And so I told them, if, if I'm not going to marry an un, a believer and an unbeliever together, I'm not going to perform the, cer- the ceremony. But I'll take you through the counseling. I'll do all that. And in the course of that, given the gospel all the time. And she called me before the wedding because... It was at the point that they're going to find somebody else. They're going to go to a judge or somebody else. And she called me. She said, I looked at the sky. And she said, I saw God. And she said, I realized you were right. It wasn't that I was right. It's the word was right. And she became a believer. Now, reverence for God. And sometimes, as, as part of the family, it, familiarity breeds contempt, some will say. And if God doesn't do what you want, and you get upset with him and all these other things, sometimes we turn, turn that off. But we should have, as our Heavenly Father and the head of the family and everything else, an absolute respect and reverence for who he is. And that's what godliness is about. To revere well is a good definition of the word. Now, see, that's taking us to brotherly love, and from brotherly love to the love, which is the uh, which is the love of the of the Father. Brotherly love is love of one another. So, you see the target that's being drawn here. That's taking us right to the point of fulfilling the two great commandments in our life. <clears throat> Part of what we were talking about in bearing one another's burdens. These need to be our primary goals, and everything else needs to be subservient to that. So in the sphere of the faith, the virtue, the knowledge, the self-control, and the perseverance, we should add the godliness, because the definite article is in front of each one of these things. So it's saying that these are all very specific, what Peter has been inspired to write about. Now, godliness comes about as a result of the five other traits mentioned becoming real in our lives. It comes about as a result of the five other traits. What is it? Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, and perseverance. Okay, Those are kind of prerequisites to getting godliness right. As we have to keep the faith, we understand and we need the knowledge to know 
who he is. We need self-control to continue on and perseverance to continue on in the Christian faith. And as a result of that comes godliness. So it's not like we're automatically godly people uh, when we first become believers. Now we're going to see that as we go through these passages because we're going to do like we always do. We're going to let the scriptures tell us what it wants us to know about godliness. What does God's word say about what it means to be godly? Because you take a word like that and you go back in the history of the church and you find all kinds of weirdness comes out of this word. It does. And they start adding legalisms to it. Some people are godly because they wear their hair in a certain way or cover their faces or uh, any number of things. and, And that's what they deem as godly. Let's let the scripture tell us if that's right or not. Godliness is rooted in a deep faith, expressing itself in virtue, expanding knowledge, self-control, and endurance leading to an awe of God and an obedience to Him. That godliness is about obedience to Him. Obedience to what? Love Him and love one another. See, that's the targets that we're, that we're hitting for. One can always measure a person's devotion to the cause of Christ by his readiness to be called to responsibility, by his diligence in it, the personal risk he takes because of his involvement in it, or by the ease with which he lays it down. You can, it can be measured in a sense of godliness. You can look at those people on the back wall back there, and you can see people who live godly lives. Do they have as, as many things as we do? I can, I can honestly say the answer to that is no. None of them on the back wall back there have, have as many things as we have. And I guess that's good in a way. What they do have is a direct reverence and a respect for the Almighty. In fact, right about now, uh, in uh, uh, I sent a note out, I believe, our brother in India is wrapping up uh, an evangelistic uh, crusade, if you will, uh, that is directly targeting Muslims. And he's about to wrap it up because it's it's 11 and a half hours difference now, so it's about 10 o'clock at night. He'll probably be heading back. And I'm sure there are going to be blessings out of it. It's one of those things that that uh, what has he done? He's functioned in a godly way. Why? He is taking the Great Commission, and he said, what can we do about it? He's got other people involved, and as a result, they've printed a couple of thousand tracts. They're going to hand them out one-on-one. They're going to go to a specific targeted area, and they've prayed about it, and they've all prayed about it. Now, that is a a godly function, is it not? Because he is obeying the Great Commission. A lot of times we don't even think about doing such things, honestly, and and we we should. But when you look at those folks there, we just uh, uh, got a report, in fact it's in your bulletin today, from our friends in Sri Lanka. And Sri Lanka, you might have known, it was a mess. It's been a mess for a year. There's a great report in there as to what what all has happened there. Stuff that has not happened here, but some of us might can see coming, getting ready to happen. What's going to happen to us if what happened to them happens here? 
how will we respond? We need to read how they responded. Because how they responded was, we're still going to do ministry. That's what we're going to do. Now see, that is, a, that is a marker of godliness, is it not? Because they're taking what God's word says and they are applying it to their everyday, everyday lives. Now, <clears throat> godliness is defined by the person of Christ. So if we want to look at what is godliness, we want to look at Jesus himself. And we look at 1 Timothy 3.16, which says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Is it a mystery? Well, it's a mystery because Jesus Christ is the mystery of the Old Testament. He is. So great is the mystery of godliness. He, capital H, who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit. He was beheld by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So, Godliness is defined by the person of Jesus Christ. Now you might ask yourself, what did he do? How would he be defined as godliness? I, I find it interesting as I go through the scripture, we get in big theological arguments over the apostles, who were the twelve apostles. We argue about everything that you can imagine arguing about. If you pay attention to it, it says Jesus is the apostle. He's the head. He often gets left out of the list. Doesn't he? But he's the top dog with a definite article. That's who he is. And when you find an office, he is, he's the elder. When you find this, he is the definition of what we should be looking at. And he is the godliness. And so what did he do? Well, he left heaven for us. Sound familiar? He took on flesh. He left heaven for us. And he is... Uh, he's the definite... Did he seek and come to seek and save that which was lost well we know he did so if we want to be godly we need to be like him that doesn't mean we need to get a robe and sandals and start wandering around the desert got anything to do with that that's just people wanting to be weird sometimes so it's but what it does mean is we take wherever we are wherever God has placed us we start there and we go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the neighborhood. I mean, that's, that's what we should do. It's defined by the person of Christ. It's the result of preparation <clears throat> to come before the holy and powerful God. Now, here's 2 Peter 3. So don't you look where we're going. You can turn there if you want to. It says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. We got some fun passages. Those first nine verses deal with the attitude of people in the last days, and it's talking about the day of the Lord. And it said, "It'll come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up." Now, see, it has heavens and earth that he's talking about. And he says the heavens are going to pass away with a roar. There's going to come a day that will be the end of the world. Okay, it, We're not going to cause it. Okay, And guess what? It's at least a thousand and seven years away. According to scripture. So I'm not worried about the end of the world right now. 
It doesn't bother me at all. People say, well, the world's going to end if we don't stop climate change. And they become part of the climate cult movement. And that's actually a world religion that worships Mother Earth, Mother Nature. That's all it is. It is Hinduism in a different form. And so <clears throat> this says it will pass away. The elements will be destroyed. Your carbon, your hydrogen, your ad. We'll see the exegesis here. This is the most basic elemental units of, of chemistry and physics. It's, it's all going to end one day. The earth and its works will be burned up. So all these things that we're accumulating to ourselves that have so much meaning to us, what's going to be their end? It says, the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? <laughs> that's, that's a good question, isn't it? In other words, what Peter's asking here under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, are you, do you have a great respect for the Almighty? Because Almighty means just that. He is powerful enough to end this universe and to end this heavens and earth. And one day he's going to do it. So shouldn't you try to get on his good side? And I think there's a little bit of fear that is used here quite clearly. That, hey... What type of person should you be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. On account of which, catch this in case we missed it the first time. The heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. And these are things, this is the type of words that are used in here would take us to the, the nuclear uh, reactions that we are aware of today. It is that type of, of intensity that goes beyond just a plain old normal fire. We've seen some pretty bad fires uh, in our lives and we see them every year and they, they keep popping up and they make shows about them and everything else that just to try and tell us. But you know the earth is still there when it's done no matter how bad the fire is. There's going to be a fire that's going to take out the heavens and earth one of these days and you say well what's God going to do with us what? I think since we're in his hand all he's got to do is close his hand and we have what all the protection that we could possibly need there I think that's what he's going to do we're in his hand he's going to close his hand he's going to go and everything's going to go away and then he's going to make it all new, Revelation 21. And then he'll open his hand and say, here it is. That which I have told you about from the beginning. In this new heavens and earth, no more sorrow, pain, the old things have passed away. That's what it is. And we are protected only because we are in the hand of God. The real knowledge of the truth is godly. People get into all kinds of arguments about crazy things when they're studying the scripture but the real knowledge of the truth has to do with godliness Titus chapter 1 Paul a bondservant of God an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the full knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages 
ago. Where you find this word godliness, it's in the middle of some really great passages of Scripture. We have a promise of eternal life to all who believe in Him. Wow. That's something. Godliness is a straightforward and clear principle that does not require a lot of deep study and thought. Just a thankful and obedient heart. 1 Timothy 6, if you want to turn there with me, because the word godliness is used four times in these few verses. So maybe it's a topic that Paul is going to write about in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, starting at verse 3, and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want to test what is sound or literally healthy words, healthy for the Christian life, you'd look to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not going to build a doctrine that is contrary to what he said. Okay, simply put. He says, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. Why? Because Jesus is the definition of godliness. He says, he's conceited and understands nothing. So when someone starts building a doctrine that's not based on the, the words of Jesus Christ, there's a problem there. It says he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes of about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of depraved mind, deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. What type of gain? Physical gain. There are some people who want to get everything, all their ducks in a row, so God will bless them. Isn't that true? That's called prosperity theology. It's all over the television set. And you watch that and they go, boy, you just, and usually it's tied to giving. You, you give and God's going to give back to you. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. They quote all those verses out of context is what they do. And, and it, they suppose that you just get your life straight and God's going to make you wealthy. <coughs> Healthy, wealthy, and wise. Uh, let's see. The words of Jesus Christ. Didn't he say the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head? Was he the best ever? Obviously, he was the best ever. He was, he was true godliness, but it didn't produce any financial gain for him, did it? What about the disciples, the apostles that went out? Didn't produce any financial gain for any of them either. That, that position is so easily refuted just by looking at the Lord. And it says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Because it's a spiritual issue. We brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with this we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and the snare and many foolish and harmful desires. And they plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. There's the verse. The love of money. Would you say that probably in this world there is a love of money that runs a lot of people? And it's kind of interesting. Some of them love money who have a lot of money. 
Other people have a lot of money and they don't love it. They use it to help and, to, and to, to bless other people with it. They know that God blesses us to be a blessing. That's, that's what they know and that's how they live. So the fact the person has money is not, <laughs> does not declare them as godly or ungodly. It's how it's used. Some of the wealthiest people ever lived in the history of the world were godly people. Try Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Try David. Solomon took him a while to get it right, but Solomon. I mean, these these folks had a lot of money, but they also knew what to do with it. Look at the New Testament and some of the early support of the, the church came from those who had a good business going, and they were merchants, and they and they were there able to to support the early church in its infancy stage. He says, "Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness." Guess what's next? Godliness. There it is. Faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. That means that you live your life with courage. Simply put, simple translation and, and, and exegesis is that. Take hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. Say, I've got eternal life. What can man do to me? Psalm 56, he can kill me. So what? Just like Paul, he sent me home to be with the Lord. What's wrong with that? He says, and you made the good confession, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses. So it's the life that Timothy had been leading. It's a straightforward, clear principle. It does not require a lot of deep study and thought. Just a thankful and obedient heart if we want to be godly. God's grace is given at salvation for what purpose? We know we're saved by grace through faith. We've heard that since we started studying the Bible. But it's given so we can live godly lives. From Titus 2, 11 to 14. Some people think that they're saved so they can just go out and run around in sin and not have any consequences. Well, that's not the way that God set it up. There's divine discipline for that, even for believers. So what about Titus 2.11? The grace of God has appeared. You notice even grace is found in a person. Grace of God is... Who is the grace of God? It's Jesus, isn't it? So we test everything from Him. Bringing salvation to all men. Now the universalists say, we'll see what He's going to eventually save everybody. Well, they haven't read the rest of the book. Okay? Because there are other things that qualify that. But salvation is open to every human being who ever lived on planet Earth. It's open. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. What present age is Paul or is Paul talking about there to Titus? Domination under the Roman Empire. Do you, you think we have it bad? We're not the only one. The Roman Empire became such a corrupt and uh, uh, autocratic type of government that nobody, if, unless they were in the hierarchy, lived well. Christians, Jews, everybody was a target. 
He says, looking for the blessed hope. Isn't it interesting? Hope is found in a person, once again. And the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Messiah, Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That zealous takes us back to add the diligence. Add the diligence. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. This is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. That often gets left out of that verse. We come together to encourage one another. Because when we as believers see other believers wanting to, to get to draw near to God. When we see that, that is encouraging to us. Encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, the day and context of the book of Hebrews is 70 A.D., which had been prophesied and the, the Jews needed to get out of Jerusalem. But they were too hard-headed to do it. The Christians needed to get out of there. They were too hard-headed to do it. So part of the 70 A.D. dispersed the church to go into all the world like it was commanded to do in the Great, Great Commission. But zealous for, for good deeds. Godly people are going to be persecuted. Second Peter Timothy chapter 3 verse 12 if you're a godly person and you think this is important for your life and you're going to live your life in virtue, honor, integrity you're going to do all that you will be persecuted now when I see books of promises and they, they I don't find these verses in there but this is as much a promise is those who believe in him shall have eternal life. It is. All who desire to live godly in Messiah Jesus will be persecuted. No matter your vocation, no matter what you do. If you desire to live godly with a reverence and respect for God, I... Uh, <laughs> Somebody, you, you walk in, you end up in a crowd and somebody is bashing Jesus. Are you going to stand up for him? Or lay down with the devil? How, how are you going to respond? Because if you stand up for him, you better get ready for a conversation. And it might not be a, a good one. might not be one of those pleasant ones. But the Lord needs to be kept at the forefront of godly people. That's what he's talking about. Uh... Paul writes in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew and the Greek as well, the Gentile. So are we ashamed of the gospel? We should not be, obviously. But guess what happens when you keep getting beaten down and beaten down? Oh, you're one of those crazy Christians. Oh, you're one of those people who who walks around saying, God bless you. You're one of those people that, that talks about Jesus. Huh. You're going to be persecuted. Some vocations more than other vocations. But if you're a person that stands up for the truth, you will receive some persecution. And we, we know people like that, that work in difficult places uh, from the world's perspective from every perspective but they still maintain their Christian faith and as a result 
they catch some uh, uh, criticisms, if you will. That's putting it mildly. You're going to be persecuted by, guess who? The ungodly. It's a promise. Godly people will be persecuted. And you also notice godly people don't persecute other Christians. They don't do it. There's, there's, you know, the folks there on the back back table, or the missionaries, they come to understand that. And they, they learn that they need other people to be able to work with, to go hand in hand with as they go into different, different places. Godliness is attacked by worldly viewpoints. And thus it requires self-discipline. Isn't that one of our traits? Self-discipline to reach and maintain. From 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Having nothing to do, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Now, I'm sorry, ladies. <laughs> I didn't write it. I didn't write it. There are other passages. I want a woman to keep silent in church that Paul wrote. In a, in a uh, cultural context, you have to understand that. But uh, I remember one time up in Bartlesville, I taught that and was accused of being a uh, male chauvinist pig and a little bit of everything else that went along with that. And uh, <coughs> uh, it says, this is what it says. And why would it say that? It's evidently the old women of his age. It's not saying that all old women are involved in these things. See, so when we run into statements like that, we got to say, well, am I involved in it? Is take an honest look at it. On the other hand, it says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life, also for the life to come. See, bodily discipline is only of little profit. There are some people that spend a lot more time exercising their body than they do exercising their soul as they should. And think about that. All the fitness centers and health centers and all that, I'm not saying shut them all down. We all should exercise because it says it's little profit. It doesn't say no profit. Okay, So there is a profit to be found in it. Priority-wise, though... It's below the spiritual profit that is important. It's profitable for all things because it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Now, if you are walking in a godly manner, God is able to rescue the godly from temptation. It's interesting, isn't it, all the places this word and its cognates are used, used to be it. It's talking about godliness and, get, and telling us what it wants us to, what the scripture wants us to know, the Holy Spirit. And it's 2 Peter 2.7. If he rescued righteous Lot. That takes us back to Genesis 18 and 19, doesn't it? Where Lot found himself in Sodom and Gomorrah, a place he picked. And it was a fully decadent place. And the Lord said, we're getting ready to go down and destroy it. Stop by Abraham's. 
told him he'd be back this time next year. You'll have a son. You all know the, the story that's there. And uh, Abraham laughed with God. Sarah laughed at God. There was <laughs> quite a conversation. Anyway, the two angels went down. But he rescued righteous Lot. How? It says the angels grabbed Lot and his family by the hand. Okay? And the word that is used there means to stick like glue. Which I find interesting. It's a picture of the rapture. The angels put their hands on the family and they couldn't get away. It didn't mean that they were all ready to go out of town. We know they weren't. Lot's wife sure wasn't ready to go on a trip out of the town. She loved the place. And so when the angels took them out of town, if they were trying to hold back, it's kind of like a little kid sometimes when you're trying to hold their hand to protect them from danger and they're trying to pull away. And what do you do? You hold tighter. <laughs> you hold tighter. What an angel do? Exactly the same thing. He rescued him. He says, righteous lot. Excuse me. Why is he there? <laughs> he was still, he was a believer. That's what it's telling us. He had the imputation of righteousness just like his, his relative Abraham. Okay, so he rescued righteous Lot. And it said he was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. So Lot knew what was right and wrong, but he just wasn't going to leave. He says, For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. He said, If he rescued righteous Lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. <clears throat> from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment those that will never ever make the decision he knows those you remember Abraham's comments Lord if there be 50 righteous will you spare the city boy he was a negotiator wasn't he and the Lord said, yeah, okay, Abraham, if there be 50, I'll say, well, Lord, how about 40? Yeah, most of us would think, uh, okay, I'm ahead. I'm ahead on this right now. And he said, yeah, if there be 40. He finally got down to 10. If there be 10 righteous, all we know is there was Lot, his wife, and the two, two daughters. And that was it. There was not enough to spare the city so he destroyed it completely and totally now that's a picture of what God thinks about ungodliness and that is a manifestation of his justice people say well he's not displayed it Peter will deal with that in chapter 2 and 3 of 2nd Peter he's not displayed it yet so he's not going to wrong He's not displayed it yet because it's not the right time. He knows the right time. And when it happens, it will be the perfect timing. That's kind of what the Lord did the first advent, isn't it? At the fullness of the times, it says. Perfect timing. <clears throat> Rome, in place. The Jews in place in unbelief. Perfect timing. And a child was born. It's quite, quite indeed the true story of what happened 
with the entry in the, of the world of this man we know as Jesus the Messiah. We're going to look at that next class. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your love and grace and mercy, for all your blessings, for all your tests. Thank you for the exhortations today of the importance to live a godly life. And, Father, we know it's not about legalisms and all those other things, but, Father, it's about an attitude that has a massive respect and an awe for who you are, for your word, and what you have done. Father, let us be those people that are known as godly people. And, Father, if there be persecution, grant us the perseverance to be able to endure it with honor and give you the glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.